From the University of Notre Dame, these are Notre Dame stories. In this episode, Pathways. A Notre Dame researcher discusses the relationship between the built environment and our habits, especially our eating habits. And as hundreds seek a path to asylum in Italy through a unique private-public partnership, the university is tracking how this method of resettlement is working. all designers at some point from how we set up our workspace to our homes um, so we can use that information to optimize um, our, our environments for our health and well-being. Kim Rawlings is an assistant professor of architecture and psychology. Her research focuses on the impact our surroundings have on our behavior. I was an architecture student here, um, so that's how I started as an undergraduate student. Um, I was really interested in how different things affected my state of mind or my mood. So staying in studio for long hours, Mm. if there was a window nearby or how the daylight affected me or this time of year when it's cold and gloomy outside, Mm -hmm. you know, just really, really noticing that. Um, So I started doing some reading. Um, I practiced architecture for a while and then I discovered the field of environmental psychology. Mm. So that's the field that focuses on these interactions between humans and the built environment. Okay. So through that, I was able to learn that um, how we design products, spaces, buildings, cities can affect um, how much we walk or how much we exercise, what we eat, um, our stress levels, how much we interact with each other, or care for other people, or make connections in communities. Um, so so that's that's really what, what motivated my interest in all of that. So within the very broad field of environmental psychology that looks at everything from um, how likely we are to engage in environmental conservation efforts to Mm. um, how our desk chair fits us and affects our stress levels at work. Mm. Um, So it looks at very different health factors, very different well-being, productivity, cognitive um, functioning. Uh, It also uh, looks at different place settings. So we can think about housing and schools, um, eating environments, uh, uh, places of worship, museums, prisons, and so on. So there's people focusing on all those different things. Um, But that's how I got interested in in both the how buildings affect us more specifically um, and our health. So okay. my particular focus is on health. Okay. It seems like, so environmental psychology, it, it seems like a field that's been around uh, for a while. It, it feels, though, um, almost new in a way or emerging. It is. If you compare it to physics or okay. architecture or something else, it really started um, being recognized in the 70s with roots in psychology and other social sciences mm. much, much sooner than that. So it was the first field to um, take on the built environment as a factor in social science research, I would say. So to really think about... Um, person environment fit or how how the built environment supports us um so that that really started the the research and the focus on built environment and we started hearing and seeing that in the literature and being talked about but you're absolutely right it is a a fairly new field um and it's it's not widely known outside of of certain areas or circles so environmental psychology is really the motivation for my work but there's a another new i guess convergence of fields uh, a re-convergence of fields in um urban planning and public health Mm. So we're now looking at um, cities, not in terms of noise and air pollution and crowding, although we still have those problems. But if we think about post-industrial cities, 
Um, that was another area where the built environment really became relevant. So we had the the field of environmental health emerge, and we started mm. talking about it, uh, the built environment in public health. And so now we're looking at issues of obesity and social isolation and more chronic conditions um, related to how we build cities um, and our communities. So if we think about suburban sprawl, for example, mm. and being reliant upon the automobile. Um, we have to drive to get everywhere. Um, we separate incomes um, and different demographics and so on. And there's a whole host of um, literature just focused on that. So my my interest in health emerged from that, that field as well. So okay. that's where I got interested in childhood obesity and how architecture, the building scale beyond the city or neighborhood community scale um, might play a role as well. Yeah. So that's where the my interest in the um, the residential kitchens came in because I was interested in a, how we um, how we make decisions about what we eat and how much we eat. Now you were published uh, several years ago on a on a really kind of resonant application of this, especially floor plans and the relationship to uh, our eating habits. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, what was that? experiment or, or research project and, and what did you find? Sure. So um, I was interested as an architect in how, how floor plans or the layout of spaces might affect how we eat. So I had um, studied some work that was um, done by another faculty member on small things in the environment that can nudge us to eat healthier or less healthy. Um, so thinking about how in a grocery store, for example, they put the 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 junk food, the highest profit yielding products at the cash register. Mm -hmm. um, but they also found that the reverse of that work. So if you put the healthy items mm. there, you might be more likely to purchase those or make impulse buys. So there are these different principles coming from behavioral economics and psychology about how we make decisions about our food. So I was interested in whether or not um, the ideas of visibility and convenience. So if we see foods more, they're more convenient to get, we're more likely to select and consume those, how that functioned in a, in a home with a kitchen. So we all talk about these great open kitchens for entertaining now, um, especially in those suburban sprawl houses where we have these great entertainment spaces. And those really emerge for good reason. So if we think back to when people had servants or cooks or people in closed kitchens, you didn't want to see what's going on, people who were in the family didn't didn't cook. Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, that the closed kitchen worked and it functioned well. Okay. Um, so then once um, again, I would say post-industrial, post-World Wars, when women had to go to work and continued working, um, you now had both parents in the nuclear home working. And so they needed a way to supervise children while cooking and they needed a way to um, spend more time with their family when they were at home. So those open kitchens served a purpose, but we never thought about necessarily how opening up the kitchen might affect our waistlines, for example, which wasn't an issue then. Sure. Um, so we had thought about efficiency in kitchens. If you've heard of the kitchen triangle, the distance between the sink, the um, refrigerator and the stove or the cooktop, um, we've maximized that, um, but it's gotten a lot bigger in our larger kitchens. Okay. So I was wondering if um, the rearrangement and the openness of the kitchen might make the food more visible or might cue us to eat more. Mm -hmm. So I was able to do a study um, that used a test kitchen where we had one-way mirrors and were able to hide scales under people's food and <laughs> do kind of some fun uh, research methods to examine 
whether or not my my hypothesis was correct. So we had a a small one-room dining kitchen area that we then set up some screens. Um, So all the participants ate in both conditions with and without the screen. So we called one condition open and one condition closed. Um, And we did find that people were more likely to get up and go serve more food. The food wasn't served on the table. It was served from the counter, the the kitchen, rather than the dining space. So we did find that the participants were more likely to get up and serve more, and then that led them to eat more. Mm. because of that. But it was interesting if we just looked at um, whether or not the open or closed kitchen condition itself affected consumption, we didn't see results. It was this cascading effect of getting up more to serve more and then consume more. And in the U.S., adults consume approximately 97% of what we serve. So we saw exactly that number in the study, too. So if you're more likely to get up and put more on your plate, you're more likely to eat more. Interesting. Each trip was associated with something like 130 calories or something. So if you add more of that and you're eating in these open areas or buffet style places or other things, those, those calories add up really quickly. Say I watched uh, HGTV a couple years ago. I remodeled. I have this open floor plan now and I'm kind of locked into it. Are there other kind of more subtle ways to to combat this? Sure. So one is um, ser- simply serving the food from the kitchen area rather than from the dining table itself. So wherever you're actually eating the food, serve the food from somewhere else. So you have to get up to go serve more. It's not right in front of you where you can just grab the spoon and put more on your plate. Um, Don't keep food out um, where it's visible. If you do keep something out, make it healthy. You know, a fruit bowl on Mm -hmm. the counter, for example. But if the box of cereal and the bags of chips and everything are right out where you can grab it, you're more likely to see it and think of it and grab it. Um, If you have, say, a combined um, family room space with the kitchen, um, you can turn the seating area away from the kitchen so you're not looking at it as Mm. much. And that might take some of that those reminders to get up and get food or um, reminders of hunger. Yeah. Um, if the kitchen is centralized and you have to pass through it um, to go anywhere else, then things like keeping foods hidden is more important. But if there's an alternate path in the house, then don't walk through the kitchen. More recently, your work uh, has really, I think, amazing implications for one segment of the population, and that's our kids, and combating the problem of childhood uh, obesity. Talk to me about this tool you're developing to help schools uh, combat that problem. Uh, So we developed the Cafeteria Assessment for Elementary Schools, or CAFES for short, Um, and it really got started uh, when I was associated with a a project elsewhere um, funded by the USDA to examine school gardens. And so we were looking at um, schools, uh, 50 schools in four states, um, most of which were um, under-resourced schools, and many of the students, um, at least 50%, many in many cases, 100% of students qualified for free or reduced price meals. Um, so we did have a, a, a focus on that population in particular. Um, so we were looking at uh, the effects of school gardens from everything from physical activity to diet to willingness to try new foods, awareness of different foods, and how that could be incorporated into uh, all different types of curricular exercises. Um, but in the process, um, the the ideal goal was that was brought up was... Um, that the produce in the gardens could be potentially used in the cafeteria or Mm. used as part of the school meal program. Um, And we quickly realized that many of the schools either didn't have a kitchen or didn't have updated kitchen equipment to be able to store or process fresh produce. Meals were shipped in from somewhere else or just simply frozen meals that were thawed and served to students. Mm -hmm. Um, So that 
uh, made me think about, okay, what what design guidelines are available for architects and designers when we're renovating or updating schools. Our school building quality is not great in the mm-hmm. U.S. So as we're renovating and building new schools, what what's out there? Um, we all, most of us grew up with the typical cafe gymatorium. It's just one multi-purpose right. space. Um, and we didn't really necessarily have all these issues related to childhood obesity to consider. Um, and I didn't, I didn't find much. There was a lot of literature available um, looking at small um, small changes, uh, convenient, you know, changing convenience or having the right equipment, but no comprehensive um, source. So um, the the goal here was to really um, figure out what what was relevant and examine different schools to see um, not only what um, what led to more selection and consumption of fruits and vegetables in particular, um, but uh, what? How could we get this information to the schools? Mm. So um, we did an extensive literature review. I think we had over 400 items when we went out and assessed all of these different schools. And so we looked at items at different scales of the cafeteria environment. So we were looking at everything from the food and the food packaging itself, the size of um, the lunch tray, the plates, the serving vessels. We know that you know larger portion sizes, for example, lead us to consume more. Mm-hmm. Um, we looked at the the furniture, so the dining tables. We all know the really long cafeteria tables that fold up and easily get put away. Um, and then the the interior design of the cafeteria as well. So that was especially something that interested me and that hadn't been looked at before. So we were thinking about, um, you know, having windows and daylight and attractive cafeteria spaces. So when you're in a windowless gym and there's a lot of noise, might that be affecting how students are eating or how much time they're spending on their food? It, interesting. And, and does it? it we, we did find it. So the... Um, Another issue that was happening at the the time of collecting this data was um, when recess occurred. So if recess occurred before the mealtime, students might be hungrier and more likely to focus on food and eating, whereas if it was after, they wanted to eat as fast as possible and get outside. So there were a lot of different policy things happening. The USDA meal program, nutrition was changing and so on. So we did find that a lot of those factors were significant. So the way we tested all these different factors was um, as part of the school garden study, uh, lunch tray photography. Uh, data was used. So after a student went through the serving line, a photograph was taken of their lunch tray. And then when they were done, before they threw away the waste, another photograph was taken. And so there was a faculty member in Texas who had developed this software that could look at um, those images, those two-dimensional images, and figure out how much volume of food was originally served and left over and Mm -hmm. use the USDA nutrient database to assess calories and other other factors related to that. So that's how we were able to see what students were actually serving and whether or not they were actually eating it. Yeah. So um, we saw things like uh, whole fruit, for example, would get thrown away um, because it wasn't cut, especially for younger students who mm. might need a little bit of help or it just took too long. We also saw that meal times were incredibly short. Yeah. Um, so there just wasn't enough time to get students through the line or let them sit and eat. Um, but on top of that, uh, we heard from teachers and staff in the lunchroom that um, noise was an incredible problem. So so lunchtime wasn't really about promoting healthy eating or giving students time to focus on food and learn about the food. It was more about social factors, yeah. like calming, crowding and noise or just getting students to stop throwing food or poking <laughs> the kid next to them or something like that. So um, it was more behavioral and a lot less about the food. 
Mm-hmm. So um, nice cafeterias that had um, really great lighting and windows, maybe a view of the playground. So you could think about physical activity as well as um, as well as diet um, that really slowed down the lunch line process and got students through the line, but then gave them ample time to eat. Um, we noticed just a different culture and mm. a different amount of food that was being eaten. So um, we were able to get all of those 400 factors down into an assessment tool. Um, with uh, several items um, that now give us these um, these four categories of factors to look at. Okay. So we can think about not only the windows, um, the overall layout of the space, whether or not you know students have to navigate through a bunch of plumbing or pillars in the cafeteria, or if one of those might steer them to the pizza rather right. than the healthy line or something like that unintentionally. Um, so we found factors like that that were um, that mattered. Um, we also found that really long rows of the rectangular tables led to more noise or tended to be more associated with noise, whereas sure. circular tables broke down students into smaller groups. Um, and that seemed to be a little bit better in terms of the noise. Um, in terms of the serving furniture, like the display of food in the serving line, we could find that um, if students saw um, a menu when they walked in um, and the menu used really creative names for, you know, instead of just, you know, potatoes and carrots and turkey or something, it was, you know, superhero power stick carrots or something Mm. like that. And the students could participate in coming up with those names. Talk to me about how you're getting this information into the hands of school administrators. So what we did after um, analyzing all of that data was come up with an assessment or a checklist. And so um, at first it was just a a 10-page paper form that you would go and um, interview the the school principal, the lunch uh, or kitchen manager, um, and then observe the cafeteria spaces. So spaces typically have a prep or a kitchen area, Mm -hmm. a serving area, and a dining area where all the tables and chairs are and so there are checklist items for each of those um, and then those are associated with a list of uh, suggested improvements so every item is scored with a zero or a one so whenever a zero is checked um, you get a suggestion for how to improve that mm. and all of those suggestions are associated with a relative cost estimate one two or three dollar signs so those those low and no cost suggestions really have to do with availability accessibility convenience yeah. and visibility so if you think about marketing and food promotion or how how we you know, lay out our grocery stores or what happens at a fine dining restaurant versus a fast food restaurant. All of those factors come into play in school cafeterias as well. So if you really promote the fruits and vegetables or the healthy meal item for the day, students are more likely to take and choose those items. So you don't necessarily have to take away all the pizza and the french fries. You can nudge students to make those choices on their own. So there are some no and low cost things that can be quickly and easily implemented. But if there is funding or if a new cafeteria is going to be renovated, built in a new school, or something, you can um, prioritize for your school what's needed most and how to get the the most out of an investment in that. Um, So that tool is available to um, anyone uh, online. And then we also created a mobile app um, that we're finishing up now. So that mobile app will also be available to anyone. And then you can just enter all of the information. It automates the, the analysis process and gives you that list of suggested improvements. 
So schools can then take that and pick from that list what would work best for them or what they're capable of doing, rather than us saying you really have to do these three things and they, they don't have the time, the resources uh, to do that, they can pick. Um, and then they can do the they can go through and use the app again to see if it made any changes as well. Finishing the mobile app now. Yes, yes. And then we just got a, a grant from Notre Dame to um, go out and study the, the feasibility of cafes, give it to schools and have them use it and report back. You know, was it easy? Um, are you likely to use it or implement some of the suggested improvements? Which ones are more likely than others? Um, so we're going to work with schools um, affiliated with the Alliance for Catholic Education um, and see how uh, not only public but private schools might be able to affect eating and the, a lot of the changes are small, um, but you do see um, you do see results fairly quickly, especially with those low and no cost interventions. And we do know from the research that um, affecting intake daily by just 50 to 100 calories can affect obesity, especially um, if we think about adults and the, the annual two pound weight gain we all mm. try to try to avoid. Um, so it really doesn't take much to just encourage students to pick the healthier option and actually be able to consume it during the lunchtime. It's a fascinating field, one that uh, I think affects more of life than people realize, right? Their environment. Absolutely. We kind of just take uh, the way our neighborhoods and buildings are set up for granted and trust it to the experts. But there's quite a bit that we still don't know yet. And we're just beginning to really understand and we need to communicate it to a broader audience. Mm. Kim Rawlings, thank you very much. Thank you. The phrase, all roads lead to Rome, dates back to the Middle Ages. It came to symbolize the Roman Empire's prolific building of infrastructure and of culture. Today, the roads in Rome can symbolize something else, reinvention. The streets full of hatchbacks and motor scooters. Lots of motor scooters wind through, around, sometimes under, sometimes over the remnants of a bygone era. The reinvention that made Rome the eternal city is evident everywhere. Take the road of Imperial Forums, for example, which stretches just a kilometer from the altar of the Fatherland Monument to the ancient Colosseum. It's a massive, modern, six-lane thoroughfare, and it runs through the ancient ruins of the famous Roman Forum. Here, those hatchbacks and motor scooters race where the business of ancient Roman civic life was once conducted. There's a different road on Rome's east side called Via Casalina that makes its route alongside an ancient aqueduct. It's here we find a small campus called the Citadel of Charity, operated by Caritas Italy, a branch of the international humanitarian organization Caritas. It's more Italians than foreigners or migrants. That's Ilaria Schneider, the Ford Family Program Assistant Professor in Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs. She's here to pay a visit not to an Italian, but to an Eritrean we're calling Joseph, who lives at one of the apartment buildings at the Citadel with his family. We tagged along for the visit. So, I, uh, we, I introduce you to my friends from Notre Dame. 
Good morning. Ciao. Joseph is looking for a reinvention of his own. He was a journalist in Eritrea, but his work ran afoul of the single-party government. He was persecuted to the point he felt he had no choice but to flee to Ethiopia in 2014 with his wife and daughters, ages 7 and 4 at the time. Did you walk? Yeah, for 7 and 4. Joseph stayed in Ethiopia for several years until he was accepted into a unique program called the Humanitarian Corridor Initiative, Schneider explains. In 2017, the Catholic uh, Bishop Conference, Italian Catholic Bishop Conference, together with Caritas and uh, the community of Sant'Egidio, started a new project called the Humanitarian Corridor Project uh, from Ethiopia to Italy to bring 500 refugees from South Sudan, uh, Eritrea, and Somalia to Italy in a safe and legal way. And um, when I heard this project, I, I thought that it was a so interesting way to integrate them, hopefully, into the Italian uh, society uh, in a legal way. So I asked Caritas, I asked the community of Sant'Egidio if they were interested to study and to evaluate this project, and they accepted. The research involves fieldwork that includes interviews with corridor refugees like Joseph. Notre Dame is the exclusive research partner studying the program, looking at the effectiveness of different models of accompaniment for refugees as they acclimate to their new homes. In the program, the 500 refugees are placed among 40 dioceses in Italy in smaller groups. Clemens Sedmak, a professor of social ethics, is co-leading the research project with Schneider. Because we have seen that large-scale immigration, you have uh, one social worker in charge of 150, 200 refugees, does not work in the sense of you have major challenges, you have uh, safety and security challenges, mm -hmm. you have um, yeah uh, problems of social order, etc. So, so this doesn't work. We also know that xenophobia is spilling up in Europe. Mm -hmm. And so you have to look for alternative ways. And uh, what they are trying to do is, um, and we also, sorry, we also see that illegal immigration or migration is also not helpful. Mm -hmm. So the Hermantokara is legal. It's uh, micro-relationships, a uh, few hosts uh, working with uh, small units. And the research question really is, does this make a difference and does it work? And by work, I would think, um, I mean, um, does it lead to uh, social peace, coexistence, cohesion? But the pathway to integration is a winding one, like so many Roman streets. The migrants must apply for asylum, they must look for work, and sometimes must deal with overbearing, if well-meaning, hosts. There is this uh, help that they receive from the church, from, the, from Caritas, but they also have, they have to take their uh, responsibility to integrate. And, then, and this is not easy because is the freedom, the personal freedom of each actor in this process that I find fascinating because it's not that every, everything is taken for granted, but each of them, all the actors, they have to be present and, um, and, and risk in, in, a, in a dialogue, in a relationship, in an encounter between the two, uh, the, 
towards. And only that is the path of integration, I think. The sisters who run the Citadel provide a scaled-back model of accompaniment that seems to be suiting Joseph and his family just fine. Caritas. I have friends from Caritas. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad. I'm happy by the Caritas management staff. He's obtained refugee status, he's enrolled in Italian language courses, and he's eager to find a job, whatever that may be. Schneider and Sedmak are studying the journey of refugees like Joseph for five years. So far, a couple of early themes are emerging. Among them is the need for accessible mental health treatment for people who have been traumatized. Another is the role faith is playing in the resettlement process. For some of them, faith is the driven force that help them to survive in all these uh, adventure or steps or risks they have to take to arrive to Italy. For the people arrive, who arrive with the humanitarian corridors, faith play, plays a huge role. Um, some of them, Muslims, ask for a mosque, and sometimes in the little towns of Italy you don't have a mosque, but the church, the Catholic Church, is trying to help them to, to find um, maybe uh, the communities around, Muslim communities, to, to help them in this process. So at the same time, faith plays a huge or a key role in the, in the social workers of Caritas and in many of them that is the kind of support they have to deal every day in this overwhelming work that is helping the, each step of these people to start a new life here. In his interview, Joseph said he's Orthodox but is attending Catholic Mass each Sunday. Uh, is that part of your life, faith? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, yeah. is that important? Yeah, very. Because moral is helpful, not only for me, but especially for my children. There was something else that came out of Joseph's interview. He's taking courses to receive a patente de guida, a driver's license. Soon, the man who came to Rome seeking a reinvention may be driving the streets that came to symbolize it. Read more about the Humanitarian Corridor Initiative and other Notre Dame stories at nd.edu. Notre Dame Stories is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications.